Good morning. We started uh, the past couple weeks, in, while we were in the gym, we started a new sermon series on the parables of Jesus. And we're calling this series Long Story Short, because Jesus masterfully was able to fit gigantic, profound kingdom truths into some of the briefest, shortest, punchy stories that we've ever heard. And we began talking about parables. This is a series that's going to continue throughout this next month through the end of March. And today we're talking about a parable uh, that Jesus told about a vineyard. Today's sermon, the parable of the vineyard, we're going to call it In the Vineyard of the Lord. And the text is from Matthew chapter 21. And so now that you can see your Bible in this room, why don't you grab your Bible and go with me to this passage Matthew chapter 21, we'll start in verse 33. Now the setting of this parable is very different than the setting of the first two that we covered down the hallway in the gym. If you'll remember, the parable of the wheat and the weeds, or the wheat and the tares, and the parables, the the twin parables of the leaven and the mustard seed, Jesus told them in the same setting. He was gathered at the Sea of Galilee. The crowds became so great that Jesus could not stand on the shore. And so he set off in a boat a little ways from shore. And he sat out in the boat and taught the crowds as they thronged about on the beach. It was at the height of his ministry. People were flocking to him from all around. That was Matthew chapter 13. Now we're in Matthew 21. And Jesus has come into the city of of Jerusalem, and he's in the temple courts, in the temple complex, and mainly he's speaking to Jewish religious leaders, though there are others scattered about who are listening in, and he's in the final week of his life. In fact, this is Tuesday, and Jesus would be dead by Friday. And so keep that setting in mind as we read this parable. Now, some of Jesus' parables are puzzles They're they're intended to be read as puzzles to be solved, as codes to be deciphered. We we talked about the official word for this a couple weeks ago. They are to be read allegorically, almost, where almost every detail can be corresponded with, with a greater truth. The parable that we will be discussing this morning is one such parable. And so, as we read it, we need to read it as detectives. We need to read it as sleuths. We need to look at this as a puzzle that we are trying to solve together. Let's begin in chapter 21, verse 33. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And so here we have depicted very vividly the image of a vineyard. Where have I seen the image of a vineyard before? Is that a significant image to God? Is that a significant image in His Word? Well, some of you who are more astute Bible students would say, yes, I have seen this before somewhere. This image is used for God's people, Israel. And one such example is the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, chapter 5, where we get a lot of this language. Several verses dedicated to the image 
of God's people as Israel. In fact, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, God says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant planting. And even some of the specific language that Jesus uses here, like the watchtower that was built at the vineyard, this is taken directly from Isaiah chapter 5. And so we have entered a, a language world that Jesus is depicting The people, the listeners, especially the Jewish religious leaders, having been very familiar with the Old Testament, would know exactly what Jesus is talking about. He is bringing us into the story of God and Israel just by talking about a vineyard. Now, that might be lost on us, but it wasn't on them. But we need to make sure we catch this first clue because if we don't, we're going to be lost. But now that we know... We are in the story of God and Israel, and the language of vineyard is the language of a vineyard is a cue, is a clue. Once we know that, other pieces begin to fall into place. And we can come to understand what in the world Jesus is talking about. Let's keep reading, verse 34. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And so we know the vineyard is God's kingdom. We know that it is the people of Israel. So let's put some other pieces together. The master of the house, who is that? Well, that must be God. The one who planted the vineyard, the one who built it all and planned it out, that's got to be God himself, the master of the house, the owner. What about the servants? What about the servants he sends to the vineyard to collect the fruit? Well, those have to be the prophets of God. We see so many of them throughout the pages of the Old Testament. In fact, a lot of times in the Old Testament, the prophets are called servants. But what about those tenants? What about the caretakers of the vineyard? What about those who have been charged with watching over things, stewarding the place while the master is away? Who are they? Well, those must be the Jewish authorities the chief priests, and the elders to whom Jesus is speaking. Those must be the tenants. Because they've been charged with watching over the place. They have been left in charge while the master is away. Now let's keep reading in verse 35. What will the tenants, what will the caretakers do when the servants arrive in order to collect the master's fruit? Let's look. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And we see how it gets worse, that the language amps up with each phrase. Beat, kill, stone. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. They abused them, mistreated them, killed them. The servants that the master sent to the tenants in order to collect the the fruit. They knew that these guys came from the one who owned the vineyard that they had been charged with looking after. And look how they treated them. Now if the servants represent the prophets as we believe they do, and if we know how God's prophets were often treated in the Old Testament, then the treatment that the servants get at the hands of the tenants is not a surprise to us. I mean, here's just a handful of examples. You remember Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 1 and 2? 
The king beat him and put him in the stocks. No wonder he was the weeping prophet, having received so much persecution for the message that he preached to the people. And what about Elijah? Many of you have been studying about Elijah in your Sunday morning classes. Remember when Elijah went on the lamb? He ran away from Jezebel because she breathed threats against him. She was mad that the prophets of Baal were defeated on Mount Carmel. And she said, I will make you just like one of them. And it struck fear in Elijah's heart. And he ran. He got out of town quick to avoid certain death. And he probably did it because of Jezebel's track record. We know earlier in 1 Kings that several prophets of God were, to use the language of Scripture, cut off by this evil queen of Israel. Cut off probably means they were killed. Look at how God's prophets have been treated by God's people throughout history. And you're not surprised when Jesus tells this story and you see how the tenants treated the servants who came. And so a lot of this language would have been familiar to Jesus' audience there in the temple. They were familiar with the imagery of the vineyard. They knew about this language world. But suddenly, in verse 37, we are introduced to a new element. And it might have come as a bit of a surprise to the people listening. In verse 37, a new detail is added to this well-worn, familiar imagery. Look, Look at this, verse 37. Finally, he... The owner of the vineyard, the master of the house, sent not just a servant, not just another servant. He sent his son. And he said, they'll respect him. They'll respect my boy. He's my flesh and blood. He's part of my family. I mean, I know they didn't treat my servants right, but surely someone from my own household, my own flesh and blood, my very son, surely they'll treat him with respect. You know, in Mark and Luke's account, the word beloved is added. The master of the house says, I will send to them, to my vineyard, my beloved son. And they may not have known exactly who that was. Some of the people listening. I'm sure some of them did because they were familiar with Jesus' ministry. It had been going on for two or three years by this time. And some of them listening were disciples of Jesus, no doubt. But some of them might not have known what Jesus was talking about when he said, the master of the house will send his son. But we know. We know who this is. We know who the son is. And some of our minds may travel to that son's baptism, which was recorded earlier in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3. You remember when the son went down to the Jordan River to receive baptism from John the Baptist, his forerunner, the one who blazed the trail for his ministry. And John said, no, I should be baptizing you. You shouldn't be baptizing me. You're greater than me. I'm not worthy to, to baptize you. Jesus says, no, this is the way it must be in order to fulfill Scripture. And when Jesus came up out of that water, do you remember what happened? The heavens opened up. The Spirit descended like a dove. Can you imagine this in your mind's eye? The Spirit descended like a dove on the sun. And a voice boomed down from heaven that said, This is my who? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 
It was the voice of the Father. We know who this Son is. We know about the beloved Son. And Jesus in this parable is revealing that God is doing something new. He has started something new through this Son. And the Master says, surely when I send my Son, they'll respect Him. Surely they'll treat Him right. If they have any respect for me whatsoever, as the master of the house, as the owner of the vineyard, surely they will have respect for my son. But we already know how this ends, don't we? We already know how it ends because Jesus has already told us in the course of his ministry. It's already been recorded for us on the pages of the Gospels. Matthew chapter 17, verse 22. Jesus said, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him. Look in verse 38 of chapter 21. But when the tenants saw the Son, they said to themselves, not, oh, he sent his Son. We respect him. No, they said, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and we'll have his inheritance. And they took him. And they threw him out of the vineyard like a piece of garbage. And they killed him. The big question of this parable, the big question this parable asks and answers, is what does the master do with those failed, wicked tenants? The ones who mistreated his servants? All the servants that he sent, the ones who killed his boy, what's the master going to do with with those guys? How is he going to handle this situation? Let's think about this hypothetically. If God places something very precious in my care, if he entrusts to me a vital task, if he gives me a very important job to do, and I intentionally blow it, And I don't just fail for trying, I fail because I don't want to do the the job that God gave me to do. Because I am intentionally rebelling against what God has left for me to do. Because I'm going in the opposite way of God's will. What should I expect to happen? What should I expect to happen if that's the case? If God says, let the little children come to me, And bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, which he did say. But I don't do that, and instead I cause one of these precious little ones to stumble. I put a roadblock in the way of their spiritual growth. I cause them to sin. What should I expect to happen? If God says, love your neighbor as yourself, but there's disdain in my heart for neighbors whose skin is a different color, whose features are a different shape, who speak a different language, what should I expect to happen? If God says, give the thirsty a drink and give the hungry a bite to eat and give the stranger a warm welcome and the naked some clothes and go and visit the sick and in prison, but my hands stay in my pockets and my feet stay firmly planted on my carpet at home, What should I expect to happen? If God says, live justly, live righteously, live according to my will, but I embrace all manner of ungodly behavior, what shall I expect God to do? 
Now, when Jesus asks his audience, what do you think the vineyard owner is going to do to those tenants when he gets back from vacation? They have been so engrossed in this story. Jesus has so painted so vivid a picture. They have truly entered into the story world here. They say, he's going to put those wretches, those evil people to a miserable death, and he's going to let that vineyard out to other tenants who will actually give, them, give him the fruit that came about from the ground. So they're mad about it. And they aren't far from the truth in their answer in what will happen to these tenants. But they don't yet realize they're the tenants. They don't get it yet. They're the tenants. They're the ones who've neglected to help Israel produce the right fruit, the fruit of a pure heart and good works and single-minded devotion to God. They're the ones who prevented Israel from fulfilling her calling as a light to the nations. They're the ones, they and their ancestors, who rejected and mistreated the prophets who came preaching a message of repentance. And they're the ones who will soon kill the final messenger, the beloved son of the vineyard owner. They've already decided to shed his blood. And if it weren't for his popularity, they would have done it already. And God says, I have entrusted to you that which is most precious. The care of my kingdom. The well-being of my people. The tending of my vineyard. And you've blown it royally. You've spurned your duty. You've neglected your job. And Jesus says in verse 43, and it's not far off what they predicted he would say, Having not yet known that they're the ones that Jesus is talking about, Jesus, verse 43, says, Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken not away from them, but away from you. It will be taken away from you and given to a people who will actually do something. Who will actually be busy doing my work, fulfilling my will. People producing its fruits. And by verse 45, and if they didn't get this by now, they're very dense. But by verse 45, we read, the chief priest and the Pharisees, when they heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. You think? Yes, he most certainly is. The kingdom will be taken from you. The kingdom will change hands. So what does the master do? What does he do? And what does God do? What is God doing here? Well, two things. Number one, he's not abandoning his vineyard. He's not giving up on the purpose that he has for the world. He's not going to give up on all those people we mentioned earlier, our neighbors, our children, all the ones who need help. God is not turning them loose. God is not abandoning them. He's not abandoning his project to save the world. He's, he's sticking in there. He's not abandoning his vineyard, but he is replacing the tenants. Those in charge are going to change. And what this parable is describing to us is that kingdom care, kingdom responsibility, the kingdom itself is passing from Israel to the church, which is a new nation, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, made up of disciples gathered out of many nations. You remember the Great Commission? Go and preach the gospel to all nations. 
God's new people will not be this ethnic group called Israel that God selected long ago. No, the new Israel is the church made up of disciples gathered out of many nations and many people groups. So I am standing this morning before the church. The church which is comprised of baptized believers, of Christians. A lot of Christians before me today. And if you're a Christian, then what you see at the end of this story is, I am a tenant in God's vineyard. God has taken the responsibility from the old guard and he's passed it to me. I am the one who's supposed to be taking care of things. I don't want to veer too far here. I started to go, but we're going to stay right here. I am the one who has been charged with doing the work of the vineyard. And the question is, what kind of a tenant am I? What kind of job am I doing? Am I a failed tenant? Like those guys? Or am I a faithful tenant? Am I faithful to the task? You see, this story ought to serve as a warning to us, and that is, you are replaceable. I am replaceable. God is going to get the job done. But if you're not going to do the job, He's going to get somebody else through whom to do the job. If I'm not up to the task, God's going to find somebody else. And I don't want that to happen. I want to be useful to God. I want to be a faithful worker in the vineyard of the Lord. I want to serve my God in heaven. I want to be faithful, not failed, like like the tenants in the story. I want God to continue using me. And God says through this parable to us that in order to be a faithful caretaker, you must embrace my son. I have sent my son to you. Respect him. In order to be a faithful caretaker in the vineyard of the Lord, we have to respect Jesus. God says, look what they did with my son. They cast him out like a piece of trash and they killed him. Don't you do that. The reason the care of the kingdom was stripped away from them is because they didn't receive my son. Receive my son. Embrace Him. They rejected Him, but He is your cornerstone. As Jesus says in the midst of this parable, verse 42, He recalls the language of Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected, the one that they threw out of the vineyard and killed, He has become the cornerstone. This is God's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now you may say, well, if Jesus came today, I wouldn't treat Him like that. I mean... If the master of the house sent his son and I was a tenant, I wouldn't throw him out of the vineyard and kill him. And if I was alive then today, I wouldn't have a hand in placing Jesus on the cross. But our neglect of Jesus, the way that we ignore Jesus, the way that we do not follow his example as a humble servant, the way that we do not walk in His shoes and speak the words that He spoke, that is just as bad as killing 
the Son. Our neglect of Jesus is as great a disservice to our Savior and as damaging to our soul as what they did to Jesus. You must embrace Him. If you want to be a faithful tenant, embrace the Son. Give Him a position of ultimate importance in your life. And if you feel like Jesus has taken a back seat in your life, you have an opportunity this morning to change all of that. Maybe you want to come and say, Jesus has been on the back burner. Jesus has not been tops. Jesus has not been prime. Jesus has not been the most important figure in my life, the most important leader. My life is not oriented around my Lord, and I'm ready for that to change. Maybe you're a baptized believer and you want to say that. I mean, you're a Christian in name, and you come to church, but your life isn't shaped by your Lord. Maybe this morning you want to come and say, I want Jesus to be the cornerstone of my existence. Or maybe you're not a baptized believer and you're ready to put on the Lord in Jesus. You're ready to put on the Lord in baptism. You're ready to name the name of Jesus Christ so that you can have your sins washed away and receive the gift of the Spirit. We want to invite you to do that. We want to invite you to embrace the Son whom God has sent for the salvation of the world. You ready to do that today? Why don't you come as we stand and sing?